Well, we are starting a new series this morning in Nehemiah. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, and uh, it's a less familiar book. So if you go in the middle of your Bible, Psalms, go back, I think it's two books, you'll find Nehemiah. And because of its length and content, I can guarantee you it won't be as long as the series in, in Revelation. But I am uh, looking forward to this. It was a few months ago, just through my own Bible reading, I felt the Lord impress upon me that uh, this would be the, the next book <clears throat> to work through. So I'll allow a few more moments of page turning for Nehemiah. And then I will read chapter 1, if you'd like to follow along, please. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is not as familiar to us as many books are, but uh, from what you do know about it, if you had to summarize the book of Nehemiah in one word, what would that word be? Anyone care to throw out a word? Wall, building, building a wall. By the way, that's, that's my last name. Do you know that? Maurer is uh, wall or wall builder. So the, the Berlin Wall is called the Berlin Maurer. Uh, it just it occurred to me the, the relation to, to Nehemiah here. Uh, but, you know, Certainly the word wall, and if you Google the words Nehemiah and wall, you're, you're going to find a long list of subjects on Nehemiah and the wall, and how great of a wall builder Nehemiah was. Similarly, if you Google the words Nehemiah and leadership, well, you're going to find all kinds of things about Nehemiah and leadership, such as 10 leadership lessons from Nehemiah, 10, 6, 8, there are so many of them. The leadership genius of Nehemiah. 
So not surprisingly, teachers, pastors, authors uh, also talk about his leadership abilities, uh, sometimes ad nauseum, sometimes that's the only thing that they talk about when they bring up Nehemiah. Then, of course, my favorite title I found combines these two ideas, Nehemiah, the leader of wall builders. (laughs) I love that. Uh, He's not just a wall builder. He's a leader of wall builders. And he was, of course. There's no, no question about that. But if you, if you want to sort of figure out what the topic, what's the big idea of this book, I think a textual clue comes in chapter 6. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Now, I'm putting this in perspective. Chapter 6, the wall is finished. There are 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah. What does that tell you? Tells you the wall was finished in chapter 6 of Nehemiah. You're too literal. Um, what it's saying is, at the very least, it's about a lot more than just building a wall because it's, only, it's not even halfway through the book and the wall's already done. Now, make no mistake about it. Nehemiah built a wall, and what he did was clearly empowered by God, and we're going to see that in full color as we work our way through this book. But the overall theme began to sort of resonate within me again a few, a few months ago. I was just reading through just my normal Bible reading. And as I read it with fresh eyes, and, and it's just amazing, isn't it? We've all had this experience. You think you know something. You think that something you should have known, and you see it again in a different light, and you're like, wow. How many times have you said this? I've never seen that before. Um, now, now, if you're creating, here's a little warning. If you're creating something that no one else in the world has ever seen before, you, know, you better be careful with that idea. You know, that's, that's the way cults start. But we all have that experience. And I began to see that uh, how much prayer, and some of you are like, of course, I've seen that always, but how much prayer is in this book? First chapter read is almost all a prayer, and I counted a total of 10 different prayers. Some of them are long like this, some of them are just a verse or two, a sentence or two. And I kept tallying up the verses and its themes, and and here is a, a very broad brush of what I found. That building the wall takes up about a third of the book, that's it, and I was very, very generous in giving this 36%. Uh, anything that did not fit into the other two categories, which I was a little bit more strict about, I just kind of threw into building the wall. So that's only about a third of it. Uh, about another third is genealogy and numbers, uh, the sort of thing that's actually in uh, the book of Numbers. And uh, I'm pretty sure I won't be digging into those details quite as, uh, as much. But then what's left is prayer, repentance, the word, and worship. And uh, that is broken down a little bit further. You've got about 12, 12% is 10 different prayers. 15% is four instances of corporate repentance. And 6% is preparation for worship. Um, so that is absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, so the way I see it is that the broken wall for Nehemiah was sort of a, a paradigm of, of, yes, that was an issue, but much larger troubles. So instead of using the traditional theme of Nehemiah being uh, essentially a wall builder, a builder of broken walls, uh, I see this theme as Nehemiah, builder of broken hearts. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. The, the, the wall thing was, was a very real thing. The wall had been in disrepair probably for 140 years since Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the wall and the temple with it, devastated, laid it to waste. Uh, they have no defenses to speak of. They're, they're uh, in danger from their enemies constantly. Now, it's possible that during that 140 years, there were some repairs that start on the wall, then stop, start, and stop. 
uh, just as happened with the temple uh, in, in, uh, more in Ezra's day. But, um, but as we know, as you'll see, the Jews had, had many, many enemies. And during that time, the wall was never completed. Nehemiah was a wall builder. Nehemiah was a leadership genius, leading men and women. There's no, no question about those facts. We will see all that in this book. But I still don't think those are the main point. So that's where I'm drawing point number one this morning. Nehemiah's chief concern was with their hearts, not their walls. The wall absolutely needed to be completed. But the way I see it, it was just really the tip of the iceberg for, what, for everything that was needed in Judah. And Nehemiah would come to find out that dealing with these people, and understand, he didn't live there. I mean, he, you know, he is a cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes in Susa, which is just a little bit south of Babylon. Um, so, and we don't know for sure. My guess is he probably was raised there to, to, to come up into that, that height of leadership. He probably spent his whole life there, sort of uh, like, like Daniel uh, did, and raised up in that leadership. But he'll come to find out that the dealing with the Israelites is like, like layers of an onion. He's going to peel this first layer off, which is the wall, and it's like, oh my goodness, look what's under that. And then peel this next one. They go through this corporate repentance, and, and then something else arises, just multiple layers of onion um, exposing the underbelly of their culture, and it was not a pretty sight. So we read here that Nehemiah's brother was the one that brought him the report from Judah. So, you know, why is his brother in Jerusalem? Did he live there? And Nehemiah always lived there. We, we don't know the details. But again, we know Nehemiah is official in the palace of King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes, of course, was the stepson of Esther. Okay, put that in perspective. Uh, his brother would have traveled approximately 900 miles to meet his brother. So he had to go up uh, the river Euphrates and then down through the Mediterranean. Long, long journey. Ezra did it uh, but just 50 years or so before this. Now, it took him four months to make that journey. Now, he, he had a large, large entourage with him, so, you know, kids and animals, and so it was, so it was slower. So I'm going to be, be very generous. If it took him four months, if you traveled about 30 miles a day, let's say he, they, they did it in a month, 30 miles a day to, to cross 900 miles, still a, a really, really long journey. So if your brother travels 900 miles to give a report about your homeland, do you think that that's all it's going to be is just two sentences worth, right? Nehemiah would have heard the good, the bad, and the ugly. Did you see what I mean here? Nehemiah's brother lived in Jerusalem or, or in Judah in the area, so at least he knew some of their struggles, and he was going to give all that he knew. He's not going to hold back, right? They didn't have like a, a two-minute conversation. They, he didn't travel 900 miles and say, hey, bro, the wall's in bad shape, all right? I just I had to stop by and, and just tell you that, you know? So, you know, it's good, good to see you, man. That's not it at all. He described way more than the, the broken walls. Now, Nehemiah, we'll see throughout this, this book, he learns new things he didn't know about the, the Jews living there. And they surprise him, and he deals with those. So, so he doesn't know everything about what's going to happen. But, but certainly his brother would have told him everything that he thought Nehemiah needed to know. So I think what Nehemiah was doing was he, he did what I call spiritual triage. 
So he took a look at the whole picture, all of their problems, everything the brother gave him and said, you know what, I've got to categorize these in terms of importance. You know, much as a, a, a triage doctor or nurse would do in the battlefield or in a hospital, you separate those who are really, really sick from those who are about to die. So he said, hey, wall is number one. I'm going to deal with these others later in their time. Um, their lack of safety was his top priority. But also because the wall, uh, because the broken wall and burned gates was demoralizing. The broken wall did not j- impact just their, their physical safety, do you see? Nehemiah's brother reported that those who lived in Jerusalem were in great trouble and shame. So the trouble is their physical safety, and the shame was their sort of their emotional well-being. They were demoralized. They were in danger from their enemies. They they weren't really a people. They weren't really a, a city to speak of. They were vulnerable all the time, so they were ashamed, and they were in great trouble. And the shame is a part of what I'm referring to as, as a broken heart. Now, we think broken heart, I mean, oh, and my boyfriend just broke up with me, and my girlfriend broke up with me. I don't mean that sort of broken heart. It, it, it's, it's impossible to summarize the entire book in, in the first message, but just based on what I've shown you, how much time is spent in prayer and repentance and, and, and the word, you get the idea that their fundamental problem was not really a wall, but it, it was with their hearts, which, again, is the message of the entire Bible. They were not following the Lord, and the Lord had allowed them to remain vulnerable to their enemies. And, and Nehemiah is admitting as much in his prayer. We'll dig into that a lot more next week. But he's admitting, Lord, he's like reminding the Lord, Lord, you remember that, that, that message that you said? That if, we, that if we follow you, everything's going to be good. If we stray, you're, you're going to send us into captivity. Well, that is indeed what you did. And I'm, I'm, I'm sharing some of that guilt. So that's reflected in his prayer as well. Uh, and point number two, which is going to take up the rest of the morning. The book of Nehemiah lays the final foundation for the Messiah. So, so two big sort of <clears throat> guiding, <clears throat> excuse me, guiding uh, themes and topics for what's happening in this book. Now, in order to see this idea, that this laying the final foundation for the book of, for the Messiah, uh, I need to set this book, we need to see this book set in its historical perspective. Now, as believers, we need to understand not only the, the history of our faith, which uh, apart from the New Testament, obviously be the Old Testament, all that history, but we also need to understand the salvation history of the Old Testament. See, we could catch all the facts, which are important. We, we need to get the right facts of the Bible. I mean, you don't want to confuse Moses and Daniel. You, you just don't. Uh, you, you don't want to, if you don't know the difference between Nehemiah and Hezekiah, you should probably read your Bible a little more. If you're not familiar with the favorite chapter in Hezekiah, uh, then you really need uh, to read your Bible some more. The Bible has 66 books, but one story. And if you know its history, but not its salvation history, you have missed that story. You just have facts. So what I'm going to try to give you this morning is a a very quick, very broad review of salvation history in the Old Testament. But as I do this, keep this in mind, please. Keep this in mind. We're aiming at Jesus. We're trying to find Jesus, trying to figure out how everything that came before this lays the final foundation for the Messiah. So I've divided this into six, whole Testament, into six different uh, parts here. 
So, number one, creation to flood. It's the longest of, of the, the uh, various six parts here. And all that we know about this period occurs in only five chapters, the first five chapters of the book of Genesis. Then the flood narrative takes up another four chapters, and we understand the whole thing begins with sinless perfection, unbroken presence of God, and by the end of this period, you have only eight people being saved from a worldwide flood. So again, only five chapters to go from the Garden of Eden to utter chaos and destruction. So there's a period of spiraling down. We, we know how bad it was uh, when God commanded Noah to begin building the ark. Um, it was spiraling downward to the point that God needed a complete reset of all of humanity. Secondly, flood to Abraham. This includes, uh, pretty much begins with uh, the Tower of Babel and the spread of nations throughout the world. And, and you think, well, you know, as it describes there, it just tells us that, that they, they were spread in the, in the general uh, area there. It names all those regions. But, of course, we know that's how people are spread all over the world. Uh, they they uh, were able to cross. At that time, there were still land bridges and probably some ice bridges. And that's how anim- animals and people spread all throughout the world. But, but God's point was... Um, you know, things, again, very quickly, you got the flood, complete reset of humanity. A couple hundred years later, things are just as bad, and God's like, what are we going to do? Uh, well, we promised not to destroy them again, so, so let's spread them out. Because he said, it, if they all work together, they're going to do bad things. So, so it's, in essence, sort of slowing down the speed of degradation. And as they spread out, they were taking all that Babylon, all those Babylonian gods, all those, that Babylonian paganism with them, um, and this is part of, of which God called Abraham out of, right? When God called Abraham, he was a pagan when he called him to himself. So then thirdly, the patriarchs, Abraham through slavery in Egypt. This period, as you know, makes up most of the book of Genesis, during which time we see that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, how would you describe their, their spiritual lives? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 1 to 10. It depends on the day, right? It's, a, it's like us, isn't it? <laughs> Ask me anything. It really depends on the day. Depends on the day, but I would say they're pretty messy. I mean, there's so, so much uh, messy, messy stuff that happens uh, among those three and, and their wives and their relatives and their sons, etc. But this is also where we, we first see the concept of justification by faith. You know, what, what especially Paul drills down uh, so deeply in other New Testament authors. Uh, chapter 12, Abraham believed God. He had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I mean, this is what Paul quotes us uh, several times. Now, there were acts of genuine faith interspersed, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the, the patriarchs, but it was mostly a period of faithlessness and chaos, which then descended into 400 years of slavery in Egypt. So what's God during, doing all that time? Well, he's sovereignly watching over his people. He's preserving his people through all of that time. Next, the law and judges, Moses to King Saul. The law was given through Moses, laid down in order to regulate Israel's theocracy, purity laws, ceremonial laws, etc. Let me take just a quick side note there and talk about the three parts of the law. So there is moral, ceremonial, and civil. Moral, ceremonial, and civil. Civil. 
Moral is the Ten Commandments, the, those, uh, those en- enduring commands uh, which are still binding on us today. Ceremonial, of course, is all the, the sacrifices, the religious part. How do I approach God? Well, he's got to, got to do all these prescribed things, which takes up vast swaths in the Old Testament, does it not? Um, and then you've got the civil part of the law, which gar- uh, governs, it, it's the governing part of, of their society. It's all the laws. You know, if you, if you um, uh, disobey your parents, boy, you're supposed to be stoned. You know, all of those laws. Uh, we're glad that's not in, in, in focus, in, right, active anymore. I had a seminary professor called that the junior high rule because uh, he said if that were true, there'd be no junior hires um, left. Um, disobeying your parents. So, um, but the, the, the ceremonial law, of course, when Jesus said that he has fulfilled the law, he has fulfilled the ceremonial law. He has fulfilled all of the sacrificial law. That's why the book of Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. <laughs> now, if you're living in Israel in the time, um, that would have been sort of good to know, right? Uh, this isn't going to do any good, but it was part of what they needed to do, the, the process of, of, of holding off, uh, keeping at bay the tsunami of sin uh, to await the Savior who could wipe it out permanently. Another Old Testament uh, professor said it's, uh, again, there's no perfect analogy, but it's like a credit card, right? Um, the, the blood of bulls and goats were, were on a credit card, uh, but the debt had not been paid yet until the death and resurrection of Christ. So, so and I, I give you those three parts a lot because there's a lot of skeptics and atheists, and I've, I've literally heard this dozens of times. Somebody will mock Christians and say, you know what, you Christians don't, don't follow your Bible anyway because I read right here in Leviticus and it says, don't plant two kinds of seeds together. Don't wear clothing that's made of, of two different kinds of materials. Come on, you, you, you silly people. You obviously um, are, are a bunch of hypocrites. Well, we are, uh, but that's beside the point. It's th- that, the Leviticus thing doesn't make us a hypocrite. It's the other things uh, that makes us a hypocrite. So what that is, that's, that's part of the, 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 the ceremonial or, or the purity laws, right? And those have been fulfilled in Christ. And then the civil law, that's the theocracy. Well, we're not under a theocracy anymore, so, so God, God allows us to govern very, very differently than that. So what's left out of the three? The moral law, which is still binding upon us. And you might say, well, well how do I know this? So as, as I read the Bible, how, how can I divide between moral, ceremonial, and civil? I'm telling you this, it really is pretty simple. If you, next time you're just reading, especially in the first five books, Leviticus, etc., and, and you, you come upon a command, think through that. Moral, ceremonial, civil, and, and you'll be able to sort out. And what's most clear, I think, are the moral parts of law. You just say, you know what, this is clearly still binding upon us because we see all parts of the rest of the Bible that say it's still binding upon us. So it really isn't that hard, and you have an answer for those skeptics and those atheists who want to uh, uh, condemn the Bible and you with it. So all this, and the, but even though the moral law remains, the moral law can convict you of your sin, but what it cannot do is save you from your sin. So even that, all this points to a need for a Savior, which the law also promised would happen. Then, after law, we've got the, the, the period of the judges, which was just more chaos. You, you know the cycle, right? 
Uh, they're, they're obeying the Lord, then they disobey the Lord, and then he sends them uh, enemies against them, and then they cry out to the Lord and repent, and then they follow him for a little while, then they disobey. So this cycle, every time you read of a new judge that appears, and I forget how many there are, a dozen, 18 or so, every time you see a new judge, the same cycle has just repeated. It's utter, utter chaos. And then Judges ends with the refrain, many of you know this, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, or everyone did as he saw fit. In other words, yet more rounds of moral degradation and downward spiral. Next, the kings, King Saul to Babylonian captivity. Period of the kings lasted a long time, about 500 years, and in the northern kingdom, when they, after they divided under, under, after Solomon and Rehoboam, northern kingdom only had evil kings, not one hint of a good king, only evil kings. Southern kingdom uh, of Judah had a mixture of good kings, bad kings, uh, but th- those were never united again um, during that time. Um, and God constantly, during those 500 years, God constantly warned all of Israel, northern and southern, that if they did not repent, if they did not follow him, he's going to do what to them? Send them into captivity, which is exactly what Nehemiah is, is praying. He's recognizing, Lord, you, you said you were going to do that. Indeed, you did. And here we are. 500 years of constant warning, and still they did not listen. And, of course, that whole season of the king started because they, they didn't like the judges. They, they, they cried out for a king. God gave them a king, but none of that changed their hearts. Now, there's a restraint of evil, right? There is a restraint of evil, but not a large change of hearts. Next, and finally, the Babylonian captivity all the way to Malachi. Uh, this brings us to the end of the Old Testament, and the question is, did uh, Israel learned her lesson after 70 years of captivity, after 500 plus years of warning, and then 70 years of actual captivity. What did they learn? Well, we're going to see some of that in the book of Nehemiah. God was always faithful through all that. As he had promised, he did return them. And as Nehemiah is praying here in chapter 1, to Jerusalem, to the place he has chosen for them, he prodded them to rebuild the temple. Uh, um, Haggai and Zechariah are part of the, uh, come on guys, uh, the Lord saying, get that temple built. That, that's crucial. Get that temple built. Temple's rebuilt. That brings us now to the book of Nehemiah. So when is Nehemiah set in all that? Well, the book closes. The end of Nehemiah is almost the exact same time as the book of Malachi. And you say, well, hang on. How is that possible? Malachi, at least in my Bible, is at the end of the Old Testament, but Nehemiah is sort of in the, in the middle of the Old Testament. Well, what's going on here? Well, it's a good reminder that the Bible is not, the Old Testament is not chronological. There's a lot to it that is, um, but let, let me break this down for you. First of all, let me start by saying, if you remember how Jesus summarizes the whole Old Testament, he uses two words. He says, the law and the prophets. That's it. That's, that's, that's all he says, the law and the prophets. And what are the law and the prophets? The law are the first five books of the Bible. The prophets are everything else. And this can be further broken down into the historical books and the books of prophets and wisdom. Now, the historical books are almost 
perfectly chronological except for Esther should be before Nehemiah. So Nehemiah comes actually after Esther. That's how you get Artaxerxes being the stepson of, of Esther. So that should be at the end. And the books of the prophets and wisdom are somewhat in chronological order, but they're also uh, mixed up quite a bit. I'm not going to go into those details. And then you've got Psalms that spans about 500 years, so it, it covers a lot of that. So if you've ever read a chronological Bible, it's a very different experience because what, what, the, what that Bible does is mixes in historical with prophets, historical prophets, just throw a wisdom book in, historical prophets, historical prophets. So you just work your way uh, down, and that's how you get the, the chronological uh, view of things. And so then um, Nehemiah comes uh, right at the same time as Malachi. So, so just keep that in mind as we work our way through the book, that you want to picture Nehemiah kind of zipped over uh, next to Malachi in terms of chronology. So what does any of this have to do with Jesus? Well, I've been trying to paint a little bit of picture as I worked my way through that, but let me give you two big ideas of what it has to do with Jesus. The first is more related to the book of Malachi and its association with Nehemiah is that the book of Malachi closes specifically looking forward to Jesus. Here are literally the last two verses in the entire Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So we know that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come because he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we know this because Jesus quoted Malachi in order to tell his disciples that John the Baptist was the, the Elijah who, who was to come. So clearly, the Old Testament closes looking forward to Jesus. That's the last breath of the Old Testament. So now, Nehemiah is very similar, but, but in, in a different way. Not only does Nehemiah end at the same time period as Malachi, but unfortunately, it ends, if you've read it, on a very depressing note. Because you've got, as I've said, all this praying and repenting and time spent in the Word uh, in this book, and then you have the final chapter. Nehemiah goes back to King Artaxerxes, so he makes that long journey. He's gone for, we don't know how long, some, some people say maybe two years. So he's a governor of Judah for 20 years approximately, goes away for a little while. He returns to Jerusalem, and it's a mess again. The people are violating commands related to priests, the Levites, the temple, Sabbath, and marriage. Basically, all of their religious practice, all of their society was once again descended into chaos. While their leader was away, the children did play. The book comes to an end on this very, very sad news, which, and we'll get there, it's, it's sort of a downer, but it should not surprise us because that it really is the history of Israel. That's their, their salvation uh, history. Uh, when Joseph died, any time a leader is taken out, bad things happen. When Joseph died, the Jews no longer had a leader in the upper ranks of Jerusalem, uh, of, of Egypt rather, and we're told there that a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. And that descended then into 400 years of slavery. 
when Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, how long was he gone before the whole crowd, not all of them, but large amounts of them, had made a golden calf and were bowing down in, in disgusting paganistic worship to it? The very thing at that very moment God was literally writing in stone on the mountaintop. Just, just days, right? The whole thing was like 40 days. Took less than that because um, took less than 40 days for that to happen. So bad things happen when leaders leave. After Moses and Joshua were gone, the society descended into paganism. After Solomon died, Israel split into two factions, never to be reunited again. So we see this repeated again and again. Whenever a strong leader stepped away, bad things happened. And we see this in our society, don't we? That when, when God allows a, a strong leader, might be a believer, might not, but that leader can guide a society in such a way as to restrain evil, to, to keep it at bay, uh, at least for a season, right? So we see that same thing in our society. So in this way, the book of Nehemiah laid the fi- final foundation for the Messiah because the people were so desperate at the end. All that sadness, read desperation. They're sad, for, they're desperate for someone to rescue them from the chains of their depravity because they, they try and fail and they try and fail. And the, the history of Israel, I liken it to a, 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 a powerful eagle that's attached to, let's say, a 100-yard cable. You know, that eagle takes off and it begins to soar. And we're like, go, Israel, go. You're going to make it. And then it's dragged back down to earth again. They have so much potential, it seems, but they never actually take off. The book ends, and the Old Testament ends, with an ache in the heart and a longing for the Savior. So we see it very negatively in Nehemiah that, that they're, they're, they're in utter desperation. We see it, you might say, positively in Malachi, where there's a specific prediction for the becoming Messiah. In this way, it's not that different from the way the book of Revelation ends, is it? Uh, not in hopelessness, not the way Nehemiah ends, but in, in absolute hope. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The world is a mess. We are a mess. And so we need Jesus to come to earth and to be the lion and the sacrificial lamb for us. So that's the way I think the book of Nehemiah lays the final foundation for the Messiah. To close, I want to read a well-known quote very much related to this point from Tim Keller. If you know Tim Keller, he is with Jesus right now. All the ache in his heart is gone. All the ache in his body is gone. He met his Savior this last week. And this quote I want to read embodies the truth that the whole Bible is waiting for Jesus. So, so quoting now. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. 
Now we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck, who, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. The Bible is one story, and that entire story, if we have eyes to see, constantly points to Lord Jesus. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we know that even the Apostle Peter would read Paul and say, he says some things that are hard to understand. And as we read especially parts of the Old Testament, we, we sometimes wave a white flag and say, there's some things that are hard to understand. That's why we need to be people of the book not just learning facts, but learning salvation history. And that salvation history is a person, not, not just things, not just facts, not just rules, but a relationship with the eternal Savior. May we see this bigger story and be constantly linked to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.